Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I just unfroze my new best friend, and he's going to join the podcast and hopefully not take it over after I give him all of his ways and secrets that he can. Okay, well, uh, fingers crossed that we are not going to be dominated in such an, an imperialistic manner by some sort of uh, Superman from the past and or slash future. Uh, this week, well, it's it's Space Seed. And Space Seed is a funny one because it's one of those episodes that has so much gravity and the sort of gravity that it could not possibly have had at the time. But with such a weighty episode, of course, we always have to have somebody to join us so that we can have another point of view. So um, say hello, Matt. Hi, guys. Just call me the Napoleon of podcasting. Oh, oh, oh that <laughs> certainly helps to put my mind at ease. Um, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hi, it's an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to have you here. As we always do when we uh, kick off our podcast, we always like to ask our guests what their history with the show is. So what's your history with Star Trek, Matt? So my history of Star Trek is perhaps a little unusual. I have seen every Star Trek movie. I, this was the first Star Trek TV episode I've ever seen. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's quite a concerted effort to have avoided watching any Star Trek of any description if you've seen all of the movies. It, it is, especially because I'm someone who was born in the 80s. So when I was growing up, there was lots of Star Trek on TV and yet somehow never watched it. But that was also the same time when I watched all of the movies that were available to me at that time. So, so when you say you've seen all of the movies, does that mean you've seen like all of the original, all of the next gen, all of like the uh, the, the the reboot? Uh, yeah, yes, the I've seen stuff. Yeah, I've seen all of them. Yes. Wow, that's, this is going to be a really interesting discussion there. That's where you're coming from. Um, I'm sorry, even Nemesis. I, I haven't I seen have, Nemesis. Okay. I've seen parts of Nemesis. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen the entire thing. That one I will uh, caveat. That's, that's, that, it, that, that's fair enough. Yeah, I just know that by reputation as like the one only for the completionist weirdos. Or I guess, oh, well, completionist weirdos of Star Trek or Tom Hardy filmography. Whichever one you follow under. <laughs> don't um, worry, Cap, we'll get there one day. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to 2030 whenever. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I think on this note of Star Trek history, I have a little bit of an aside. This mm -hmm. is, before we started this podcast, the only TOS episode I had seen. Oh, I wow. watched it over a decade ago, be, right before watching Star Trek Into Darkness. For some reason, I didn't watch Wrath of Khan. It was a very weird decision-making choice on my part in college. That's but a terrible decision choice. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I did. I, okay. Like, I think I've talked about this at the beginning of this podcast, but worth reiterating, I have seen the TOS movies, um, like, later on. Uh, I think watching them for the first time and talking about them with JG is why we did this podcast. But, uh, see, I have seen Wrath of Khan, and now I'm watching Space Seed for the second time, which is a first for the podcast. But I'm glad we have you here, Matt, to still fulfill our mission of a newbie on this episode. Yes, I'm glad that that worked out that way. Yeah, and... I mean, maybe this is a good seamless transition into talking about the episode. Um, I really did not remember much enough to knew to, enough to know that when I was watching it this morning that it seemed familiar. Parts are like, oh yeah, I remember that. But I, if you had asked me before rewatching it, anything about it besides Ricardo Montalban is con, which everyone who even hasn't seen this episode knows, 
I wouldn't be able to tell you. This episode is thoroughly unremarkable when it's not being bafflingly bad. That's why well, I, I take I, out of the gate. <laughs> That's a, even before our episode summary, I think that gives this uh, conversation right. some shape as to where it's going. But before we do go any further, I think we should probably take off our usual episode summary. So, um, Kev, best of luck as always. Um, would you care to give us our episode summary? Can't believe a leapfrog the episode summary almost. All right. Um, the USS Enterprise finds the derelict Botany Bay ship adrift. Uh, I'll stop reading verbatim from Wikipedia now. Uh, they find a group of soldiers from the eugenics wars in the 90s, led by one Khan who they unfreeze. Uh, Khan charms the crew, uh, especially one Maria McGiver- Marla McGivers, a new crew member for this episode. Um, she helps him accidentally sort of helps him stage a coup and he takes over the ship from Kirk. He unfreezes his soldiers. Uh, but then Kirk has an idea to use anesthetic, anesthetic gas to knock out con soldiers. They have a big fight in the control room and Kirk of course emerges victorious and then sentences con sentences slash rewards con and his group, as well as McGivers to colonizing SETI alpha five. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, so we have a noob, a sort of noob, and a me on this episode. So where to begin? Where to begin? Um, well, uh, let's see. Matt, Matt, you're our guest. So why don't you kick us off? How did you find this one, given that it's your first episode? I think I. what it reminds me of is like there is some of the easy kind of camaraderie that exists between mm. the crew that I liked. Um, but that all fell aside the second Montalban comes on the scene and he then kind of dominates everything. And he's great. Like he is, you see why they wanted to build a movie around him as a villain. He's mm-hmm. incredibly charismatic, incredibly good looking. Like, you know, it's, he dominates the episode, but a lot of kind of like the plotting and uh, resolution really makes no sense or is kind of laughable. So I think I might be a bit more positive on it than you guys, but I'm also not comparing it against other episodes, which might be better. So Yeah. I, I think this sort of speaks to my experience too, watching it in college before Into Darkness comes out. Uh, I was just like, oh, this is what Star Trek is. It's a lot of people talk, talk, talking in rooms about these sort of heady sci-fi concepts and there's some lame fighting and then it kind of wraps up. And no, that was enjoyable and charming in a retro way. And like, that's kind of felt like at the time having no baseline for this show. And having now seen Balance of Terror, the Corbinite Maneuver, uh, the Squire Gothos, like all these episodes I really loved uh, from this show, this really doesn't, Cut mustard. In fact, even compared to like some of the less good episodes, this is a lot more boring, frankly, than Star Trek usually is. It's they usually have a better grasp on um, just keeping things moving instead of a full first half hour of this story pretty much just being exposition and talking without much interest outside of Ricardo Montalban's screen presence. And without getting into all of the um, wild plot turns and bad characters management but uh yeah we can get that more detail later after your first impressions jg i really dislike space (laughs) i think it's absolutely terrible um and it's one of those episodes where 
because of everything that's come after it, I mean, we're still kind of sitting in the shadow of Khan. It's one of those uh, indelible pieces of Star Trek, which far, far exceeds, you know, the movie, the episode, the other movie. You know, it's become a piece of pop culture history. It's become something which is, is kind of inescapable. You can do jokes about it on Family Guy. You can make reference to it in, like, Saturday Night Live. You can, you know, everybody knows who Khan is. Everybody knows roughly what's going on with it. And in a way, that's terribly unfair in the episode because that this episode can't possibly bear the weight of future history, and it's not fair to expect it to. And, you know, I mean, Montalban is obviously the big draw here. He's He's certainly the best guest star we've had so far, arguably the best guest star that Star Trek will ever have, give or take maybe a Christopher Plummer. It's it's an amazing performance, but it's in service of nothing. And it, everything about this is just such a string of pathetic, hoary old cliches strung together by some of the dumbest character work that the show has ever seen. So if you put aside all the, that's that's me putting it gently, um, if you put aside all that, all the history that is to come, the Wrath of Khan, Into Darkness, all that stuff, but even if you put all that to one side, like you said, Kev, just judging this against other episodes of Star Trek up to this point, it's still found wanting. Our lead characters aren't very smart. Our guest character is so dim even Ahura's thick in this episode and she's normally great it's just it's such a poorly put together episode that just feels like it's been slung together in order to to fill some screen time the only redeeming feature I can find in this is Montalban there are some moments early on in the episode where before they find Botany Bay before they revive him where basically the other characters all kind of like make fun of Spock in like a lighthearted way, like something like Spock is like, why, why do you delight so much in proving me wrong? And that's like, oh, okay, good. Like this is kind of the, you know, uh, Trek camaraderie that I, you know, know from the movies. And all of that kind of drops aside once Montalban and like the actual plot of the episode is introduced. And I think it really suffers fr- for that because then the rest of it is just that like as... Kev said it's very uh, exposition heavy. It's very, um, you know, it's then characters are making decisions that anyone would be like, why are you doing that? Like giving the entire spaceship specs to this random person you just revived. And you almost have to kind of like, you know, do a fan wank to make it all make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, no shocking at the beginning with like them sort of like chiding Spock and having fun with him. Like, Again, that's like, a, I, I almost feel like this episode might become us lecturing you of why this isn't a good episode, and I'm sorry. That's okay. But it's just, um, it's like, a, again, that's really fun in a vacuum, but you get that every episode. You get fun interaction between Kirk and Spock, and right. contentious interaction between Spock and McCoy, and like good banter. It's almost like, once you know that that's the baseline, everything that's good about this episode is like, well, every Star Trek can do this well. But it can't do... This also lacks a lot of the fundamentals at the same time. Um, like, we could talk about how, like... like not just Ricardo Maltzman's good, but also, like, our core cast, Shatner, Nimoy, Kelly, they're all, like, doing their solid good work that they usually do in a lot of cases. But, yeah, there's, there's just so much else wrong here. 
I think part of the problem that I have with this episode is I don't really think at heart it really understands what it's talking mm. about. And I think that's one of my main kind of objections to it because I find the politics in this episode really difficult to cope with, not just from a sort of 21st century perspective, but we've seen, again, in episodes that we've already covered on the podcast, we've seen uh, that Star Trek can be progressive. And this is one of those episodes that a lot of people will return to and I kind of claim that it, it, it indicates that Star Trek could be progressive because you have like a uh, Sikh in the lead role and you have, you know, like uh, you know, the main other guest stars is, is, is a woman. But it requires such a shallow reading of this episode to to get to that because the, the politics in this episode are just awful. And MacGyver's, MacGyver's is, is the worst kind of example of it she's like an Anne Rand kind of character who's just this kind of weak feeble woman who desperately wants to be dominated by this big strong hunky superman in a go-go boys outfit for some reason and um it's just awful and she's this weak pathetic character who just I mean she falls in love with him before he's even opened his eyes I mean like Montalban is a good-looking guy. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> come on. Um, and then she's just this kind of like weak and feeble kind of um, stereotype. It's incredibly undermining, considering how well we've seen Star Trek can can handle female characters. We've had, uh, you know, we've had lawyers. We have, of course, Uhura. We have plenty of examples in Star Trek up up to this point, but in, that have steered away from this. And yet, everything about the way that MacGyver's is handled is just this kind of like lazy, oh, women just want love. They just want a strong man to show them the way. And the worst thing about it is, is that's exactly what she gets at the end. Like she's just allowed to swan off with her big muscular, uh, you know, Superman. It's awful in so many ways. It just makes my toes cringe. Yeah. When, yeah, when, she, when they first see him and like, she's a meet, you know, like I, I joke to myself almost like, wow, like she is visibly just super horny from Montalban and he hasn't even opened his eyes. Just like <laughs> she's looking at him and it's like, it's funny at first to watch and then, but they take it deathly serious and then it gets kind of into like, you know, you know, a, a, as you said, like into the, almost into like, you know, it's yes, she like wants the like strong manly Superman. But it's also he's, you know, engaging in classic like abuse tactics and stuff like that. And that just makes her fall like more in love with him. And yeah, like you said, like in the end, she gets rewarded for all these bad choices in a way. It's it's bizarre. It's something that like when it started, I, I found almost funny. And then by the end, I was like, this can't be how the show treats women every episode. So I'm glad to hear it wasn't because of just the reputation of the show that I know wouldn't make sense for that. It's not how it treats women every episode. It touches them in quite a few episodes, though. Well, yeah, it, it's the I 60s. Mean, it is There's the definitely time. a lot of sexual politics which which don't stand up. But but even by the standards of the 1960s, this is poor. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Okay, yeah. I mean, right. I wouldn't expect it to be modern in its sexual right. politics, but I think I would expect it to be a little better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um... Yeah, and it's just the whole thing with Montalban being like this great man of history, like it just doesn't work. Like I don't know how we're supposed to view him. Like the, all the people just talking about what a great leader he was, but also he conquered like a quarter of the planet. The admiration for him is odd, 
but it's clear you need that admiration otherwise because if it was like well he's bad news then they would just like the whole story of the episode wouldn't happen they wouldn't let him running loose on the ship so it's a weird position the writing has sort of self put uh sorry self-owned put itself in and yeah it's i it's just so bizarre to see like scotty being like he was such a cool guy. I always looked up to him, even though he was like a dictator. He was a benevolent one. That's just so, it just doesn't make sense. It truly does not make any sense. Well, no, and part, 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 of, the whole, um, part of the whole future history thing is that, I mean, putting aside the whole 1990s thing, because, you know, fine, you know, I, I'm right. not expecting, you know, great accurate predictions of the future or whatever. And, you know, from the 1960s perspective, if there had been like a, like a nuclear holocaust or something, fine, maybe the 90s did seem like a plausible time where there could be this kind of rise of barbarism again or whatever, as opposed to, you know, rise of the X-Files or whatever happened in the 90s. It's a long time ago. I don't remember it all. Um, but the, the, the sense that Khan is this great warrior um, but also he's like basically uh, like a Nazi or, a, you know, like a Hitler or Napoleon, like this kind of dreadful dictator. There's, there's no way to square that circle. And it's really, and this is another hugely problematic, I don't like using the word problematic, but I don't know what other one to use. This is another hugely problematic part of this is like the whole kind of racial politics behind it don't work for a number of reasons it's one of the reasons i find it very difficult to get upset about um benedict cumberbatch being cast as uh, khan and in into darkness because um you know uh obviously benedict cumberbatch is 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 not somebody from uh the indian subcontinent but then again mm-hmm. neither is ricardo montebat was mexican um so it doesn't work either either way it's just you're you're casting somebody who isn't the right ethnicity for the role that you've got which is fine if you're doing genuine colorblind casting, but I don't think that's what was going on in in, in the middle sixties. And the whole the whole thing around this idea that he's uh, he's Sikh, which is another thing that people lean on in an effort to try and kind of kid on that this episode is progressive in some way, also just doesn't bear any kind of weight to it. MacGyver's initially describes Khan that way when he's still in his like sleeping chamber, but there's nothing at all to indicate that. Like he's not, he's not wearing a turban. He doesn't have any cast jewelry. He's not wearing like traditional clothes. Like I said, he's basically wearing a go-go boys outfit, which I am fine with because Ricardo Montalban is very hot, but that doesn't help (laughs) identifying him um, as somebody who was a Sikh. Um, It's just her assumption. She basically just makes a, a racist assumption about this guy that the episode then never really bothers to connect with are correct and later on there's a there's a moment where she's painting him in his quarters and she paints him with a turban but it's a it's that's a very thin fig leaf indeed and the whole thing about him being oh they're great warriors it's like one step away from the sort of like racist black strongman in the circus kind of cliche it's just so badly mishandled and they keep trying to push this idea and so instead of having this character it's, it might be one of the ways that the script suffer because originally Khan wasn't called Khan. He was called Ericsson and he was going to be like a blonde haired kind of Nordic type, you know, so kind of like more like a traditional kind of Aryan sort of Superman kind of thing. Casting him as somebody who doesn't come from that background without actually materially altering the details of who Khan is makes him look like just the st- standard kind of shifty foreigner kind of cliche 
And that's incredibly damaging. That's an awful thing for Star Trek to be doing. And there doesn't seem to have been enough awareness around the script to pick up that that's what it was doing. It's not being progressive, just having somebody from a non-white background, if you're just portraying them as this kind of evil villain, shifty foreigner type. And I think that's all that Star Trek really does with Khan in this episode. Again, Montalban is so good in the role, he almost kind of gets away with it. But that's the strength of Montalban. It's, it's not the writing. I really, oh, just the racial politics around Khan is just awful in this episode. There's an... One thing I was thinking at the end of the episode was there's a underdeveloped, if you want to be generous, and perhaps undeveloped, if you don't want to be je je uh, generous, uh, theme of kind of the uh, the constraints that uh, Federation modern kind of mores and society put on the human race. Like you know, uh, you know, uh, what I've gathered through osmosis is that. You know, Star Trek is kind of utopian in many ways, and, you know, society's problems have been figured out. And so, you know, you can see this kind of, well, if you are, want to be generous, you can see this kind of chafing that human, that the humans of the crew, which is most of the crew, except for Spock, uh, has at the kind of, at this utopianism, at the fact that, like, their lives are mostly peaceful, their problems are mostly solved. I think it's something that, you know, from if I was a modern writer or if if someone from, you know, modern were revisiting this episode would probably develop more kind of the attraction to these qualities that might be like inherent in the human race that are not allowed expression. Um, and that's like kind of these like martial qualities and stuff like that, that Khan isn't supposed to embody um and i think that would still be kind of rancid politics i think it would be a lot more interesting though politics than what we actually got and you can kind of see nods to that with mcgyver's attraction to him and what he stands for with the random and weird admiration that everyone has for oh yeah this guy was basically mussolini or napoleon <laughs> and uh but you know it's kind of cool that he was a dinner table discussion I think as you cast it kind of as a rebellious thought to the constraints of the society they live in, I think it would be, I think it would make a bit more sense, but they never square that circle. They just kind of leave the admiration in there without talking about why the admiration might exist in this society. Yeah, it, I think that's what I'm really missing is why they look up to this person who like by any objective standard, unless you are, I guess, a Randian weirdo, <laughs> why he would be admirable for doing these things. And like, it also not really any reaction to him trying to take over the ship. Like these people should be like distraught <laughs> that their hero is like trying to kill them. And instead, end of the day, they're kind of like, ah, oh, buddy, you thought you got us, but you know what? You're still all right. <laughs> and they... <laughs> Give him Here, the have a planet. Possible, yeah, yeah, and obviously, yeah. That... Or once they discover that he's Khan, they just put some guards on him, and that's it. Right, like even knowing that that giving a planet's going to backfire. I mean, it by the intention of this episode in a vacuum, it was supposed to be a very kind punishment. So it is just like, it's just so weird that they do that. 
Yeah, and and the whole, you know, they're also playing it as like, you know, oh, well, you know, he just can't help what he is kind of thing. Mm. Um, which, again, is is kind of weirdly uncomfortable in a way that the episode just yeah. doesn't have enough time to, to discuss. Um, what I will say is that if in a desperate attempt to try and find something nice to say about the episode, I do think Shatner and Montalban play off each other mm. very, very well indeed. I'm, I'm not... I'm not critical of um, Montalban's casting, particularly simply because he's such an astonishingly good actor. I do think you could have any guest actor of the week fill that slot, and and the character would probably work as well if if it was I don't know like Leslie Nielsen or someone like that back <laughs> back before Naked Gun or you know which well, I suppose there's a logical connection with Ricardo Montalban, um, but like if somebody else had been playing that role, I think I think it probably would have worked more or less as is, but. Because Montalban is such a good actor, you can see Shatner really ups his game once he gets like a one-on-one scene. I think one of the great weaknesses of the Wrath of Khan is that there's no scene where Shatner and Montalban are in the same room together. They shout at each other over communicators or whatever, but they never actually share any screen time. And watching Space Seed, even though I'm loath to put the weight of history on this episode, watching Space Seed and watching those two actors play off each other really works, not just because Montalban is so good, but, I mean, we, you know, we're very pro-Shatner in this podcast, but you really see the way that Shatner ups his game in order to match the person that he's opposite this time out, and it makes all the difference in the world to those scenes. It's a very fun but kind of silly scene when, Shat- when Shatner... Well, uh, Shatner's not even questioning him at first. It's Spock that's questioning him to like kind of get him to open up about who he is. Um, and it's like fun because Montalban's fun and Shatner's fun in that scene um, because then when Shatner takes over the questioning. But it's also very silly because Montalban is constantly like, oh, I see what you're doing here. And then just goes along with it anyway, which is the part that doesn't make sense if he's supposed to be this kind of like military genius type figure and i think one thing that could have also made this episode better is that if they had more done more to kind of develop the threat that you know his superior genius would also have not just his physicality which they only bring out briefly in the fact that he understands the engineering manual really quick yeah he's like his schemes are basically just all reliant on people like trusting him too much. It's he's not very much of a genius. Yes. <laughs> and and his scheme is foiled by Kirk doing another very simple scheme in return and then pulling a random stick out of a wall and beating him. It's <laughs> he's not an impressive threat in this episode. You know, one thing that his superior genetics did not prepare him for was the threat of a club. You know, yeah. a weapon that's been around since you know as long as humanity's been alive. It also it also didn't prepare him for the threat of one of the worst directed fight scenes ever to make oh, it on God. television. They just like kind of like gently push each other around a room. It's insane. <laughs> there and... was one cool move where Shatner hangs off the wall and like twists oh, yeah. him down with his legs. He uh, did the little Black Widow sexy twist. That the... was fun. That's what I thought of. I was like, wow, that's the Black Widow move. <laughs> But yeah, outside of that, yeah, it was is just pushing each other around a room until Shatner happens to find something in a wall he can pull out that's not clear what it is. Yeah, it's it's not great. This is from the same director that gave us the the terrible terrible fight scene in Court Martial as well. Uh... So you know, there's there's history when it comes to bad fight scenes here. 
Um, and for the rest of the episode, honestly, though, there's not, I mean, direction isn't really up to much, but I mean, it's basically a bottle episode. There's not really right. that much that, that, that can be done. There are some early efforts on to have a bit of sort of dynamism in the bridge shots where the camera is sort of moving about. But, but I mean, by and large, what this episode relies on is, is the charisma of, you know, the stars to be able to hold it. And thank goodness this week we have Ricardo Montalban because, I mean, I hate to, I hate to labour the point, but I mean, he, of all the characters we've seen so far, he can hold the screen better than anyone. It's amazing just how good he is at making otherwise absolutely nonsensical rubbish sound like it's resonant, sound like it means something, sound like Khan has some kind of consistency or backstory that makes even just a tiny little bit of sense. It's it's a genius piece of casting, um, and it really is the only thing that, that, that saves this episode from, from just descending into absolute nonsense. Apparently, I, I'm sorry, this is Maybe a bit of a tangent, but this is just something I was reading on Memory Alpha. Um, back to McGivers. Uh, apparently, there was a deleted scene where she talks to uh, a character player, Barbara Baldivin, who played uh, Angela Martin, the crew member getting married in Balance of Terror, and who also pops up in a shore leave. And I think having her have a friend mcgivers might actually make that character make a little bit more sense I, it doesn't say on here what the scene would have been about prob my shot in the dark guess is uh, mcgivers talking about how hot and cool Khan is and it's just so i can i can thing. actually help you a wee bit there kev um, okay yeah so, uh, so yeah so the, the, the scene i mean basically yeah you're right that's what it is okay, uh, but it it helps. The purpose of the scene was to help establish the idea that McGivers has this interest in history and that she has, like, I know she's we, she's called a historian in the thing and we don't really get much sense of that other than that she's got a slightly creepy mask in her quarters um, and paints a bit. Um, but it was to help kind of reinforce this idea that she's um, like deeply and passionately obsessed with this idea of history and the past and that she, she has like not the age of chivalry, obviously, because that's not going to work with Khan, but it's this idea that she, she longs for a, a period of time when men were real men and women were real women and small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small furry creatures from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's that. So that's, that's what that scene was going to be. It was, it was to try and establish that's why she, one of the reasons that she's so interested in Khan is because she's this, she has this deep investment in, in history. Yeah. I mean, would have been notable to have two women talk to each other in Star Trek. <laughs> or just two women in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess Uhura was here briefly. Uh, yeah. she, I, don't, yeah. I don't even remember if she said anything, but she was here. Uh, she gets a bit of, she gets a bit of dialogue in the, in the dinner scene where I think she oh, then also right. just passes out. And I thought that's, that's, that's pretty much metaphor for the episode. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, at, at least Uhura gets that commendation from Kirk, possibly posthumously, if they had died. <laughs> you know, the other thing that come, that that I think about, that I thought about, is that the big, like, thing about Khan as a historical figure is that he's supposed to be part of these eugenics wars. But they shy away from kind of the common association of eugenics and dictators uh, with the fact that there's no mention of Hitler. Like, she literally has, like, in MacGyver's room, she has paintings of like great dictators of history, right? And I don't mean great as in like the ones who are morally good. I mean like great as in like 
famous or controlled a lot of, you know, the world. And uh, there is a conspicuous absence considering the other company that is there and the context of both something called the eugenics war and the context of dictators. And I have to think that they shied away from that because they knew that if they compared him to Hitler, then then anything other than just like shooting this guy immediately would be completely rejected by anyone watching. Um, but it's, it's, I found it very notable how there was no comparison there when we're talking about a eugenics war. Well, I think this is another side effect of the fact that, that Khan wasn't Khan in the original draft of the script. He was Ericsson and he was original, originally designed the character as this kind of blonde Nordic Superman. So I think in the original draft of the script, i.e. before Gene Roddenberry got his hands on it, um, that probably would have been implicit. So you didn't necessarily need to have something as straightforward as, apart from anything, it would be weird if MacGyver's had like a picture of Hitler on her, on her wall, right? <laughs> like 20 years after the first the Second World War had ended. That would be a weird thing for a TV show yeah, to have. I mean, um, right, it'd be very weird. <laughs> but but I, think, I think if you'd had this character, Ericsson, as like, like the blonde-haired, like traditional Aryan Superman, I think the link with eugenics would be clear, but there wouldn't necessarily have to be dialogue to reinforce it. I think it would be implicit. Changing that background from him being this this Aryan kind of figure to being this kind of, um, and I'm sorry to use this cliche again, but basically shifty foreigner, because that's all Khan has ever written as. And that's, uh, I don't mean that's so racist at all. That's just a failing of the writing. Um, but I think by shifting his background to something like that, the, the, um, the subtlety or the or the kind of implicit connection between eugenics and and the Nazis is lost, and no dialogue is put in to make or not nothing is put in to make up that gap, which would have been self evident in the original draft of the script. So I think you're right. You're absolutely right, Matt, to say that there's one very conspicuous example, and I have a feeling that might be because of the way the script was retooled as it was rewritten and went through the different drafts. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, one thing I keep thinking about this episode is even though, you know, like you guys said, this isn't a good episode, especially compared to other Star Trek episodes, there's a lot here that I feel like could be developed in a way that mm. could be interesting with better writing. You know, right. I think the, I keep coming back to this, you know, idea of the the scene where they admire him but also the scene where he kind of justifies what he's doing. He's like, why not improve the body? You know, it's like, I am stronger. I can do all these things. I'm smarter. Like, why, why do we have this prohibition on improving the body? And it's like, we know why we don't want that, you know, in a modern, you know, like in our society, we know why, you know, we, there is an inherent kind of revulsion to that because of how that gets twisted so often. But I also think that that could be an interesting thing to bounce off of these characters and off of this future society, you know, where technology has improved, but the human, you know, body is largely the same. Like, why is that? But it's not developed. It's just he gets a big speech about it and then uh, he goes back to uh, trying to kill Kirk. It's You're right. I think the fundamental ideas in this episode could be good the idea of waking up 
like an old. I mean, what was it? The conscience of the king kind of deals in similar territory, if I'm remembering that that episode correctly. Um, is like, what do we do with like a person who's committed crimes and has a this checkered history, but like, how do we square that if? the sort of statute of limitations has run out in a sense, or if they're not actively doing something bad in front of us. Um, the issue with this is there's just so many unforced errors with, like, the philosophy behind these characters. Like, why are they admiring Khan, everything from the Gibbons, etc.? And also just, like, the pacing of the episode. It's just so slow until the takeover, which happens, like, again, like a half hour in. Everything before that is almost all just, like, dialogue, talky exposition. It's... And you, you can write, obviously, compelling, actionless TV, if that makes sense. You can get characters down in a room and have them talk to each other and have it be compelling. This just isn't. It just definitely isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, yeah, just to put a bow on it, it's just, like, very odd that, like, the writer is getting in the way of himself, basically. He has these good ideas, or potentially good ideas, and he's just shooting himself in the foot by, like, exploring them in all the wrong ways. I'm going to lay some of the blame of that at the feet of Gene Roddenberry because there was a lot of rewrites done on this episode. And again, things like um, Khan coming from, uh, you know, like, uh, the Indian subcontinent, as if it's right. The way that McGuffin Mac- Mac- delivers that line, by the way, is so bad. Like, it's oh, this yeah. incredibly exotic place whilst she's serving on board a ship where the first officer is a Vulcan. It's just, it's, a, it's, it's really, it's a terrible delivery. Um, I don't generally like to bag on bad performances, uh, but I'm afraid Madeline Rue does not really knock it out of the park here. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't keep sliding it off, but it's very hard. It's very hard. It's very hard not to. Sorry, go on. Here's just the one thing I have about the Indian subcontinent thing. If he was like a blonde Aryan guy, it would be even weirder that they're celebrating him and like <laughs> admiring him. And because then like, because we were talking about how like that would make sort of the, the Hitler subtext more textual, but that just makes the reactions even more insane. So it's almost, That's a fair it's point. sort of damn if you damn if you don't. Yeah. Well, this, is, this again is why I'm laying some of the blame at Gene Roddenberry's feet, because some of that does come from the rewrites. Um, uh, the, original, the original episode itself, um, which was by uh, Kerry Wilbur, um, was initially very well received, and then it went through a whole bunch of rewrites because it was apparently going to be too expensive. They were going to have like scenes in outer space and all this kind of stuff, mm. and it got it got cut down and cut down and cut down, and they tried to make it more of like a character piece. But in the process of doing that, they threw in all this extra stuff, and by they, you know, I mean Gene Roddenberry, and right. and a lot of that kind of diluted what was there in the original. I don't necessarily think that the original would have been successful as it stood. It, it definitely did need rewrites in order for it to function as a piece of 1960s TV drama. But a lot of these inconsistencies then get thrown up. I think what's I, I, I sort of slightly widen the focus a wee bit. I do think um, one of the funniest funniest, that's the wrong word, one of the most curious things about this episode is how often it gets cited as being this like beacon of progressiveness in Star Trek because for anyone, I know we've talked about it at length during this, I won't belabor the point, but for anyone who actually sits down and watches the episode, 
I don't understand how you could come to the, the, that conclusion. And so much, yeah, like all that weirdness around, like, yeah, but if he was Aryan, why would they admire him? That wouldn't work because he'd look like a Nazi. Yeah, that's right. That's because Gene Roddenberry is a hack. Um, he's just <laughs> not a very good writer. And I don't, again, I don't necessarily mean that as a pejorative. Like, hack writers, like, like, Kev, you and I have done Doctor Who for long enough. We know people like Terence Dix and Terry Nation. Like those guys are hacks as well, but in a in a in a good sense. That just means that you can turn out good, competent fiction in a short space of time. When I say Gene Roddenberry's a hack, I'm not really being that kind. It's just obviously not occurred to anybody where these like massive kind of traps are, you know, these huge pitfalls that this episode falls into. And I, I, you know, I, I, I cringe when I see people like, um, uh, you know, Walter Koenig and, and George Takai going, oh, well, you know, because we were so progressive in the 60s. I mean, just look at Space Seed. Yeah, just look at Space Seed. Sit down and watch it and then see if that's the conclusion you come to. Because if it is, it really shouldn't be. No, I, I really got to agree with you on this point, you know, and it's it's really kind of remarkable that this is held up as a progressive episode, something I didn't realize. Like, I, I knew that the fact that Khan was a C character, even if, again, he's played by a by an actor who is not, uh, you know, so I don't know why that's a progressive point if you have a character who is of non, you know, american or english uh descent but is not played by a character of that descent i don't know why that's particularly progressive um but yeah and then just beyond then like the racial politics of you know essentially like nazi superman are our superiors um it's you get the whole like gender politics which are just laughable until you realize they're serious and then they're really bad yeah i almost don't know what else to say about this it's just such a baffling episode on sort of every level um with like and i guess the one good thing about it is the montalban performance and he does a much better performance in a movie that was produced late. so it's almost like nicholas meyer is like like not that he was intending to do this, but like I'm going to redeem this episode by taking what works about it and actually giving it its own spotlight in a much more functional story that cuts out all of this insane weirdness. I mean, I think that's exactly why they cast him. My understanding is that after the first movie didn't succeed, they basically look through old episodes and they're mm-hmm. like, "Where? Who's a villain that pops?" <laughs> that's true. I guess. I guess I mean more like. Um, I don't know if Nicholas Meyer was thinking Space Seed's a piece of shit, but I can save it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm famously uh, antagonistic towards the Wrath of Khan because I also don't think it's a very good Star Trek movie. I think it's a very good know. film. I don't think it's a good Star Trek movie. I think those two things are different things. But it's once again, like, like for me, the Wrath of Khan is just a space, it's just space Seed writ large. It's, uh, it's a not very good Star Trek film, which is absolutely and completely saved by the sheer charisma of, of Ricardo Montalban. And, you know, that's all right. That's not the worst thing in the world. I look forward to this debate in, I think, sooner, 2025 or six, but <laughs> we'll get to there. <laughs> you know, I think that it, it could have been interesting to see if they had made Khan a more multivaried threat. Like, the thing I remember about the Wrath of Khan, and I'll admit it's been a while since I've watched it um, is that like, he was like a real threat, you know, he, you know, it, oh, yeah. there was, 
there's something about like the writing, the performance that made him a real threat. Whereas here, you know, like Kev said, he just, everyone just trusts him too much until he takes over the ship. And it's like, you don't see him really outsmarting people. You know, this guy who's supposed to be five times stronger than an average male just gets beat up with a, you know, a random club at the end. It, you never really get the sense that he's like the threat that I think they want him to be. You know, it's, I mean, maybe that's a product of the show that it is on. I don't know, as I mentioned, but like, I think there should have been maybe more up and downs. You know, Kev, you said that the takeover is a half hour in. I think it's even later than that. I think it's 40 minutes into a 50 minute episode. You know, it's like at the very end. It's, you know, the takeover should have happened much earlier and there should have been kind of a cat and mouse game to it. Yeah, but that would have required uh, a writer of better quality than the ones yeah. that we have working on this episode well, to make it yeah. come together. Sadly, that's that's just not what we have. Well, and I guess that's kind of my main takeaway from this is that I think if, if there was a writer of better quality on this episode, like there's all these things that I think could have been drawn out or played upon that could have been done in an interesting manner rather than the way they are done yeah and i think this almost gets to the same sort of argument i've made in previous episodes where obviously great tv has existed in this time period in the past but i think the practice of writing tv had to be practiced in almost to a sense so people can realize what works and what doesn't and yeah i think you need like a more modern sensibility to be like wait we need actual action in this episode and by more modern i mean like 90s 2000s and then when you get to the streaming era they seem to forget this principle again <laughs> but you need like action before each commercial break you need to keep things moving you can't just have the characters standing around and talking it doesn't make for compelling television i just think that wasn't as an ingrained principle in the medium at the 60s point in time they were still figuring it out yeah, and I think um, not that compelling television is probably a, a fairly decent summary of this episode. So let's call it there. We shall leave uh, Space Seed behind, and we will very much look forward in about five years' time to getting around to the Wrath of Khan and revisiting this all over again. Uh, but I think in the meantime, we can probably give this episode a little bit of a score. Um, so Matt, what would you like to give it? I mean, it's difficult because obviously I haven't seen other episodes, so I'm kind of evaluating this in a vacuum. Um, I think I did still enjoy it more than not enjoy it. And on that basis, I'll give it a a six though again most of that was again attributable to the fact that Montalban was just so charismatic that it was fun to watch him on screen here and watch the main cast play off him um well jg for my rating you said earlier either just before we started recording or at the beginning of this recording i cannot remember <laughs> that this was the worst episode we've covered and my gut instinct was like well what about miri that was really bad but uh, I think this conversation has turned me, yeah, this is worse than Miri. So if I give that a four, this gets a three. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, I, I do think this is a worse episode than Miri. And I stand by what I said. I do think this is the worst episode that we've managed to cover so far. I'm, I think I'm going to give it two and a half. And all, actually... all of that is Montalban. All of that is Montalban. <laughs> so, Yeah. I want to say you gave Miri a two flat. So if oh, you did wanna... I? Oh, in that case, in that case, I'm giving this a one and a half. 
There we go. There we go. Right. What an absolute piece of shit episode. I'd love to say that this is the worst episode that we're going to cover in this podcast, Kevin. I'm really sorry. It's not. There's worse out there, but but not by much. So um, I, I I hope you'll um, I hope you'll forgive me for that small spoiler. I mean, honestly, we got enough animated discussion out of this that it's just like, well, let's. This was a much more active episode than our last three, which were just like flat in the six seven range. So you know what? <laughs> uh, maybe that's a good thing if we're gonna have some more bad episodes ahead of us for the podcast sake, at least. I'll well, that's survive. that's that's a very positive way of looking looking at it. But I think we can probably leave space seed for there and move on to our recommendations. Matt, you're our guest this week, so uh, what would you like to recommend? Uh, so based on the line uh, that they have revived, 80 Napoleons, I am going to recommend uh, some books I've been reading recently, which are not new books. Uh, they've been around for about 15 years or so, but they're called the Temer- Temerare books, T-E-M-E-R-A-I-R-E. And they're about what if the Napoleonic Wars took place and there were dragons. Um, and, you know, it's it's... The hero, it's kind of like master and commander with dragons, only where one, you know, one of the characters is a dragon and the other's a human. Uh, and they're both English and they're fighting Napoleon. And it's actually a pretty fun series. It is not super deep. There are fun running subplots about how the dragon is, you know, very pro-dragon independence and his human has to keep being an English gentleman and try to find reasons why that should not happen until he is convinced that it should. And, you know, just other things about how, you know, Napoleon keeps kicking everyone's butt. And it's, uh, it's a fun series. If you like history, if you like Napoleon, like Napoleonic war history, if you like dragons, this is a good series. I'd recommend it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, Kev, I believe you're also of a literary bent this week. So what would you like to go for? Yeah. Um, yeah, that dragon book sounds fun. I'm going a little more highbrow, I guess. Uh, I'm recommending the horror novel Tell Me I'm Worthless by Alison Rumfit. Uh, the disclaimer I'll give is I've known Alison via Twitter online for years now. Uh, I'm really happy she has her first published book out, and I wouldn't recommending it if I didn't fully love it uh, because I'd feel weird about it, but I have to get the word out because I love this story. It is about um, this trans woman who has a falling out with one of her friends from college when a third friend of theirs disappeared when they spent the night in an abandoned house um and they have to sort of they had a huge falling out and they have to sort of reconcile and confront this sort of past trauma and it is a very like trigger warnings abound it is a very sexually explicit book it is a very um horrific book in the actions it talks about a very violent book it is every trigger you can think of under the sun pretty much represented in this book it's a very gripping experience but it the prose is fantastic it is so engrossing and um just fascinating like how it's written i was i really could not put this book down um even though it like really shook me and i don't get shook so much by books maybe i, don't, I guess i don't read a lot of horror but i also like i don't know like I get grossed out by things, but not really like, oh my God, I can't sleep at night. But this is one of those things that really, really shook me up. So I, yeah, I, and I think it's just fantastic. And it just has, works with such wonderful like themes and messages. Um, 
So yeah, Tell Me I'm Worthless. It is a wonderful book. And I wish Raymond Allison all the best. I think she's an amazing writer. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's always good to be able to support new established, uh, new, sorry, new emerging writers and help them right. get established. So that's, that, that's really brilliant. My, my recommendation is neither literary nor highbrow. I find myself in the slightly embarrassing position of recommending the reboot of Quantum Leap. Mm. Um, which is not something I expected to say. I, I have a passing familiarity uh, with the original. Um, it's fine. I don't really have any nostalgia for it. I watched it a bit in the 90s. It's all right. I, I, I've never really gotten uh, what the fuss was about. Um, but in a desperate attempt to have some colours move in front of my face for 45 minutes, I kind of tuned into this. And I've kind of... I... I I, I, I don't know why I find it so difficult to say I like it, but I do in, in a way that I find hard to articulate, which is a bit of difficulty when you're coming to a recommendation. Um, it stars Raymond Lee as uh, Ben Song, who is the uh, titular leaper, uh, replacing, um, of course, Scott Bakula in the original. Um, he's a very charming kind of uh, lead presence, a very familiar kind of energy to sort of... Um, like Randall Park, he's that sort of very charming. He's a very good actor. He 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 shifts between all the different roles incredibly well. Um, it's it's very silly. Um, it's not to be taken seriously. It's got a little bit of an overarching plot, but most of it is standalone. Uh, really really good supporting cast. A particular uh, call out to uh, Mason Alexander Park, who's playing a non-binary character who is only ever just treated as they are. They don't make a big song and dance about it, which is lovely. Character is also allowed to be flawed. It's it's a really nice little role and a nice little bit of representation. Ernie Hudson is in it. I love Ernie Hudson because he's just great in everything. Um, it's it's not super deep TV. It's 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 good, you know, like uh, I don't know, TV dinner and a bottle of beer kind of television, you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's it's fine as of the moment of this recording. I haven't seen the very last episode. It hasn't been broadcast. It'll be shown in a few days' time. I'm hoping they manage to stick the landing. Um, but as of the 16 of 17 episodes I've seen so far, it's just like really enjoyable, decent, pulpy uh, genre TV. So, I, yeah, forgive my embarrassment, but I find myself in the position of having to recommend Quantum Leap. I mean, my beloved CW superhero shows are ending, and this sounds like the itch I need to scratch. So you know what? <laughs> like, that's exactly like the kind of like, television that i could definitely like throw on when i got nothing else to burn i guess i should catch up with evil first as well but um yeah that that sounds like my kind of vibes that's a good recommendation jg <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's exactly that it's just like tv to throw on when you just want to throw on some tv and the, oh, yeah. you know there's, there's nothing wrong with that at all um but good excellent well i think we'll probably leave recommendations there and we can move on to plugs so uh matt what would you like to plug uh, I don't have any plugs. Um, you know, thanks for having me on. This was really fun for me. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, it was an absolute delight to have you as well. Um, Kev, would you like to tell people how they can get in touch with us? All right. You can find us on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And I also frequently guest on the podcast Total Massacre. You can also find uh, JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R. R-R-I-E dot Scott and his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology going through the Beatles track by track 
please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And thank you, Matt, for joining us this week. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Next week, however, well, you never know how things are going to pan out. This week, we've had Space Nazis. Next week, we have a taste of Armageddon. And of course, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>